approval of a mandatory hotel quarantine for arrivals. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 18th of October. Here are today's business and finance headlines. China has delayed at the last minute the release of key third quarter GDP data and other economic data for September due this morning. No explanation for the postponement was given and no new dates were provided. The data comes at a sensitive time for the Communist Party with its 20th National Congress meeting in Beijing this week. And the data was expected to show further weakness in the economy and confirm that the government's growth target of around 5.5% for this year, the lowest since 1991, wouldn't be met. Financial Secretary Paul Chan said Monday Hong Kong is reinforcing its status as a premier international financial hub despite a recent bumpy ride. Speaking on the first day of the SAR's Investment Promotion Week, Mr Chan acknowledged that Hong Kong had seen people go elsewhere and face challenges to its competitive status during the pandemic. But he said Chief Executive John Lee's maiden policy address tomorrow would introduce highly favourable terms and measures to attract enterprises and talent. Mr Chan cited the SAR's world-class infrastructure, welcoming business environment, competitive tax regime and internationally aligned regulatory regime as key economic advantages. He stressed that Hong Kong had been rationalising its anti-epidemic measures to prepare for the world's return, lining up events such as next month's Global Financial Summit and the Rugby Sevens. The new UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, has reversed nearly all of his government's tax cuts announced in the mini-budget just three weeks ago. He warned of eye-wateringly difficult decisions still to come to balance the books and he told the House of Commons that economic stability was now the priority. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Leeds Securities and Nick Marrow of the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a view from Japan is John Byrne from the Asian Development Bank Institute. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks bounced from near, near lows of the year, boosted by strong bank earnings. The S&P 500 jumped 2.7% to 3,678. The Dow gained 551 points, or 1.9%, to close at 30,186. The Nasdaq surged 3.4% in its best day since July, finishing at 10,676. Bank of America reported better than expected third quarter earnings, sending its stock up over 6%. And Bank of New York Mellon also beat forecasts, boosting its share price by over 5%. The Pan-European Stock 600 index jumped 1.8% higher. The UK's FTSE 100, that rose 0.9%. Hong Kong stocks reversed steep early losses to close higher. At the low of the day, the Hang Seng index was down almost 280 points, or 1.7%, to with within just under 60 points of hitting the lowest level since May 2009. That would have been a new 13-and-a-half-year low. However, stocks recovered to end the day with gains. The Hang Seng closed 25 points, or 0.2% higher, at 16,613. 
The tech index rebounded from losses of 3.6% to close 0.2% lower. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.4% to 3,085. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is unchanged at $91.62 a barrel. Gold is half a percent firmer at $1,650 an ounce. And in the bond markets, the US 10-year Treasury bond yield is one basis point lower at 4.01%. And following the ditching of most of the tax cuts announced in the UK's fiscal update just three weeks ago, the 30-year gilt yield tumbled 41 basis points to 4.37%. However, that's still well above the level of about 3.75% seen before last month's budget. And the US dollar was lower to start the week. The euro is 1.2% firmer at 98 and a third cents. Traders are based uh, are braced for possible intervention to support the Japanese yen after it touched the lowest level since 1990. And this morning, it's trading in Tokyo as low as 149 against the dollar, nearing the key psychological 150 per dollar level. Sterling gained 1.6% to trade at $1.13 and a half cents and eight Hong Kong dollars and 91 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan is trading at 7.20 and a half. Chinese state banks stepped up selling of the dollar on Monday to support the renminbi against the surging U.S. currency. Large state banks were swapping renminbi for U.S. dollars in the country's forward markets, then selling the dollars in the country's onshore markets to hold up the value of the yuan. And Bitcoin this morning is 2% firmer at $19,500. And things looking much better this morning around Asia-Pacific stock markets. In Australia, the SX200 up one and a quarter percent In Japan, uh, the Nikkei 225, that's rallied one and a half percent. The Cosby is up about one and a quarter percent in South Korea. And futures markets pointing to a gain of about 330 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. nine and a half. Let's welcome our guests this morning. We have with us James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Nick Marrow, Lead for Global Trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning to you as well, Nick. Good morning. Um, let's start with a, a review of President Xi, Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping's speech at the, uh, the 20th National Congress which he gave on Sunday. Maybe, James, I can start with you. Yeah. Did you detect any changes in economic policy at all from, from what he said over the weekend? Uh, not really. We didn't see a change in COVID-0 policies, which we kind of expected before, uh, like a week before the the, the thing was uh, organized. And uh, we heard rumors that it's going to be a uh, 4 plus 3 policy instead of a 7.7 plus uh, 3 policy right now. But uh, as before, like a week ago the uh, I think the rumors starts to change that the uh, party is going to be sticking with the seven plus three policy and uh, we didn't see anything change after the speech during the speech and uh, we think this is gonna 
uh, stay here for a little longer than we expected. We first expected the the 4.3, a uh, 4 plus 3 policy to effect after uh, this whole thing ended, and then uh, pro probably uh, it's going to be a zero plus zero policy after uh, March of next year. But right now we're seeing seven plus three probably lasting until uh, minimum until the, uh, the, the March of next year. And how are investors likely to react to that? No, probably not, not that much. Yeah. So we, we've seen the reactions in the markets uh, ahead of the meeting and uh, 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 yesterday is during the meeting and uh, people are kind of expecting uh, not a lot, just some minor changes in the COVID zero policies because we've, we know even if we allow foreigners to enter China uh, on a 4 plus 3 or 3 plus 4 basis, uh, there are COVID, COVID zero policies in th inside of China for its citizens might still not change, but we can't even get that. Um, and Nick, he talked a lot about the external environments and he warned of dangerous storms um, ahead. He talked a lot about China having to become much more self-reliant now uh, to deal with um, what he described as international blackmail at one point. Do you think dealing with those issues, those geopolitical issues, have now overtaken uh, dealing with the economy in terms of importance? Well, we've definitely seen another kind of renewed emphasis on national security and security-related themes over things like economic development and maybe other things that might be more palatable to investors. Um, I think this ties very much into uh, the recent U.S. export controls that were placed on China um, just what, about a week ago or so, um, which, I mean, from our assessment, they're the most sweeping, most damaging restrictions imposed by the Biden administration, at least in the tech sector uh, on China uh, that we've ever seen. Um, there's a lot of commentary out there indicating that the chip sector, not just in terms of its potential, but also its current existence, faces somewhat of an existential threat um, mm -hmm. based on what's happening there. And so, I mean, this is feeding into a lot of what Xi Jinping has been looking at over the last, you know, in, you know 10 years in, in office in terms of overexposure to reliance on foreign inputs, uh, doubling down on, you know, self-sufficiency. These are policy campaigns that I used to track when I was in Beijing in 2014. Uh, so it's not anything new, um, but it's adding urgency to um, uh, well, I think what's in the policy environment, uh, particularly as China's relations, not just with the U.S. sour, but you know more broadly with the West as well. And one, one of the aspects of that, um, those export controls, that maybe hasn't been so well commented on, and we, we know that um, it's going to impact you know, semiconductor industry, exports of high tech uh, to, to China, but also it's causing a bit of a, drain, a brain drain, isn't it? Because a lot of American citizens are resigning um, from Chinese companies, and they're the ones that provide a lot of the expertise in the tech sector. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, a lot of these people are, are I guess, returnees, uh, so people who gained American citizenship and then came back to China. Um, but I mean, they're put in a really unenviable position, right? I mean, you have to choose either, you know, your citizenship um, mm. or your job. Um, and, you know, that's that's not really a great position to be in at all. Um, I think it also illustrates the degree to which um, these soft factors tie China into the global economy. Um, this talent factor is something that I think a lot of people hadn't really considered in the past. Um, but I think the fact that the U.S. government is now cracking down on something like this just illustrates the extent of their concerns over technological competition with China, as well as mm -hmm. the potential of things like you know technology and, and IP leakage to that market and in over you know items that the U.S. sees as um, linked to national security. Now, James, on the economy, he said that per capita GDP will take what he said a new giant leap to reach the level of a medium-developed country by 2035. 
Now, that implies a doubling in the size of the economy from 2020 levels. And I've done a quick calculation that works out at annual average GDP growth of around 4.7% over that period. Do you think that's achievable? I think it's hard. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how Xi Jinping and his administration is planning to uh, grow China's economy and using what model, because uh, based on the model that China has been using in the past, it's uh, having investment and kind of somewhat uh, manufacturing and somewhat export. But right now we've seen investment taking a lot more weight in the economy of China uh, than 20 years ago. It's about mm-hmm. uh, 40% or more. And uh, to change that, that means uh, the, the local governments but usually relies on uh, which usually relies on land sales and uh, real estate developments are need uh, need to uh, think of a new way to uh, uh, to uh, achieve growth and uh, I don't really see it right now because real estate uh, the real estate sector is currently under siege uh, policy uh, uh, regulation wise and uh, debt wise and uh, if we are and uh, I think in the meeting uh, she especially mentioned that the uh, residential houses are not a a way of investments or a way of uh, um, uh, price manipulation so so Aside from real estate and aside from uh, the tech industry, I don't really see uh, where the growth pound growth pound is going to be for the next twenty years, uh, and, and, uh, unless they find some new ways. Nick, if if um, they do, they've got a pretty difficult choice, haven't they, on the, on the mainland? Because if they do move away from this investment. Uh, sort of model, which has generated over the years a lot of growth, but now that investment is finding difficult places to go. Uh, or even if they keep with it, it's almost certain that under either choice, um, they're going to end up with a slowing economy. Hey, that's right. I think the slowing economy is kind of the inevitable outcome here. Um, and I think, you know, based, if, if we look at um, if the Chinese government is able to deliver, you know, around, you know, 4.7% growth annually, one of the things that we probably should consider is, you know, where is that growth coming from? Um, a lot of the activity we've seen over the past year has been state-driven at the expense of private consumption, private business, both of which have been kind of disproportionately hit by shocks tied to zero COVID. Um, in the future, we are expecting to see the state rely more heavily on an expansion of the state sector. Um, and so when we think about, you know, who's benefiting from this growth, even if we are seeing these relatively high growth figures, which are growth rate figures, which we also don't really see as, you know, very likely. But even if we do see rates of around, you know, f- you know 4 to 5%, um, that this could be disproportionately, you know, benefiting standard enterprises, you know, mm. overseas commodities exporters for the companies who are reliant on consumer demand, household spending, the retail sector. Um, you know, the, the outlook is a lot less certain, particularly if, you know, I think James summed up very well, if as zero COVID kind of persists into 2023, those firms are going to remain under stress. Um, and so it's going to be a very uneven picture for a lot of uh, people in the market. I mean, this is a transfer of wealth in effect, isn't it? We're under that model from the household sector uh, to the state run sector. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, if you think, look at the Chinese policy priorities over the past decade, there's been so much emphasis on rebalancing the economy towards a more consumption driven model. Um, and since the pandemic, we've really seen a stagnation in that policy agenda. I think one of the biggest constraints that we're looking at are kind of the structural factors that are holding back uh, any kind of meaningful rebound in private consumption. And that doesn't just touch on you know restrictions tied to zero COVID and the kind of cratering consumer sentiment tied to that. It looks at things like employment, uh, income growth, wage growth. Um, um, the lack of 
kind of government support from the fiscal side in terms of uh, facilitating direct transfers to households that might, you know, increase their wealth buffers and actually encourage them to spend. Um, these are things that, you know, China is not alone in experiencing. This is very much a story for a lot of exporters, particularly in Asia. Um, but it's something which the Chinese government has been very, very unwilling to address, at least via, you know, I guess from the classical economic perspective, from demand-side policies, it, it's been very much a supply-side-driven uh, policy agenda over the past forever, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been something that's you know, going to really come to more of a head um, as we look over the next decade. Now, China's delayed at the last minutes the release of key third quarter GDP data and other economic data for September, which was due out this morning. No explanation was given, no new dates are provided, although we do know this data comes as the 20th National Congress is meeting in Beijing this week. The data was expected to show further weakness in the economy due to the impact of President Xi's zero COVID policy and the ongoing property crisis and also confirm that the government's growth target of around 5.5% for this year, which is already the lowest since 1991, wouldn't be met. Uh, According to economists, GDP is forecast to have risen 3.3% in the third quarter year-on-year compared to just 0.4% growth in the previous quarter. Um, James, it's not unusual for sort of maybe lower-level data uh, to be delayed, but not normally done with GDP data, is it? So what should we read into this? Uh, Not really reading into this at all because uh, it's it's pretty important for this uh, meeting to uh, go smoothly without any kind of interruptions. So I, I, I kind of expected the data is going to be delayed. So you think it's because yeah. of that? They don't want embarrassing data out while the Congress is meeting? Yeah, I'm not sure if the data is embarrassing. <laughs> I think data is data, is factual. And uh, so I just want the, uh, I think people, all the party just want everybody to focus on the meeting and on the, uh, on the policies that is going to be uh, announced in this meeting without any other interference. So I, I'm just expecting this to be postponed for another two weeks or even in a month. And, uh, but really, we don't really expect much from that data set at all. Nick, what do you read into it? Yeah, it's weird. Um, I mean, I think it was foreshadowed a little bit by the fact that you know, trade data was also kind of um, unexpectedly suspended mm. um, last week, which I haven't seen ever, I think. Um, but um, I guess it also puts China in a little bit of a bind um, mm. because I think a lot of the market reaction um, I think what James said actually is, is a very reasonable explanation, but I think the market re- reaction wasn't expecting that. Um, and if that was the intention of the Communist Party, they didn't really telegraph it very well. <laughs> mm. I mean, they could have said this, you know, a couple, you know, weeks ago and said, "Hey, this is going to happen," but um, you know, we, we, this took the market by surprise. And I think one of the big risks that we might see of this is, you know, if China does produce data prints that is rosier than expected, there are inevitably going to be questions around data veracity and things that kind of. Put you know poke more holes in the statistical narrative. Whether that's true or not doesn't really matter. The um, perception is there, um, and that's not great for investor confidence, particularly at a time when well, we talked about, th- about this a bit earlier in the program. But what we're seeing the signals out of the Congress are around policy continuity, and I think you know normally policy continuity is a good thing for investors, but in this case, policy continuity is something that people are not happy about because it's putting a lot of stress on their operations. The business mm-hmm. environment is deteriorating, and so con- considering that sentiment already is not very good, um, this you know doesn't really do much to alleviate that. One thing we did learn yesterday is that uh, the big state-run Chinese banks have increased lending by 22% to $1.3 trillion in the first nine months of the year. Um, Big increase also in new loans, which suggests uh, that the money is 
being directed to support the economy. But is it working? And we know it's going into President Xi's favoured sort of sectors like manufacturing and tech and so on. But is it working? Is it boosting the economy? Uh, I don't. I don't think it's really going into the uh, the small, medium, and micro uh, businesses in China. And all if from the uh, industry profits uh, data we've seen, it's going mainly into state-owned enterprises. And uh, the small businessmen that I knew of kind of uh, have a hard time struggling to get funding. And uh, the but the data I think it's uh, improving marginally from July. Uh, the July data, I think we, we've uh, went through here in the show before, and it was uh, uh, catastrophic. Mm-hmm. But then the August and September, it all has a marginally monthly improvement, yeah, month over uh, month after month. So it's it's not that bad right now. Do you think, Nick, the uh, the loans are going into the right places? It's hard to say. I mean, it depends on who you're talking to, I guess. Um, if you look at the broad macro picture, uh, an uptick in loans could, you know, pretend, you know, a, a nice rebound. But again, um, I think James raised a really good point in the sense that this is disproportionately going to those larger firms. And when we look at the position of smaller and medium-sized enterprises, many of whom occupy critical parts of various supply chains in China, those companies still remain under stress. Um, and so it's hard to really kind of differentiate um, between um, you know, or, or kind of assign importance to um, these different sectors um, and say, you know, it's good that the big SOEs are getting policy assistance while the, the smaller companies are struggling because at the end of the day, these economic linkages are so tight. Um, and if, you know, one side is continuing to suffer, there's going mm-hmm. to inevitably be disruptions that emerge, you know, you know in, in the outlook. Um, and so um, on balance, we are still looking at this as very much a credit demand problem, even if we are seeing credit supply um, kind of recovering from those July lows. Um, So our own kind of uh, uh, feelings about the economy and and how it relates to credit are still not super optimistic. James, very quickly, finally, let me get your thoughts on uh, Hong Kong markets. We saw a rebound finally off the lows in the Hang Seng Index yesterday, only small, but the the, the Hang Seng was down um, almost 2% at one stage for the year, down 29%. Do you think a bottom is in now? I think bottom is near. If we see this uh, Hong Kong market is in a structural bear market and uh, based on all the bear markets that we've seen uh, after the year of 2020, 20, uh, 2008, uh, we've seen max drawdown of a structural bear market from the year's high about is about 30, 35%. Average drawdown about 31%. If we plug those numbers in, so you can see if we having a, we were having an average drawdown, we've already hit the uh, 16,800 point and if it's a max drawdown the point the, the low point is going to be 16,100 points so if seen we've we've already there and kind of kind of there so a bounce back is uh, kind of expected but i don't see it lasting uh, very long okay well that's james wong chief investments officer and managing director at lead securities and also nick marrow lead for global trade at the economist intelligence unit <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.25 on the phone from Tokyo, Japan, is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning, John. 
Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So um, more um, volatility in the currency markets. The Japanese yen, it's touched now a 32-year low. It's trading at 149 this morning, very close to that key psychological 150 per dollar level. What are the authorities going to do about this? Because all this talk of intervention isn't, isn't stopping it, is it? Yes, well, we've seen the yen to continuing its uh, depreciating trend over the last month, reaching the level of 149 uh, yesterday. Um, and this is largely driven by external events. We saw stronger data from the U.S., which uh, contributed to the, the level that we saw yesterday. And what can be done? I think, um, you know, the, the, the Bank of Japan intervened on 22nd of September. And, you know, this helped to halt the decline at that time. Um, whether we see another intervention, it remains to be seen. I think that, you know, when we look at the effectiveness of the intervention, it's really about halting the, the speed of the, the decline and addressing the actual volatility rather than leading to a sustained, uh, you know, addressing of, of the depreciation. Is there any possibility that maybe there might be coordinated central bank intervention? Because the Bank of Japan at the moment is on its own, isn't it, um, in this? Do you think um, maybe we, we, we obviously remember the famous Plaza Accord in the mid-1980s yeah. where the central banks did get together uh, to try and uh, strengthen the yen? Could we see the same thing again? Well, at that time, of course, at the time of the Plaza Accord, the dynamics were much different. Um, at the moment, of course, we have a strong uh, dollar and inflationary pressure in the U.S. So given that scenario, it's unlikely that the U.S. will be interested in engaging in intervention at this point. Um, however, of course, you know, things may change over the course of time, which would mean that um, intervention at a coordinated level might be something that uh, should be considered um, to the extent that it would help economies overall. But at the moment, I think uh, the Bank of Japan is um, left to its own devices in terms of intervention. Mm. Um, so, you know, that would mean that one would look, have to look at that intervention effectiveness in terms of whether it addresses the volatility and halts the speed of the decline rather than um, leading to any sustained uh, impact, which would, of course, as you suggest, require coordinated action. And as well as that, it would require... Uh, shift in domestic monetary policy, which we don't see at the moment. Uh, but despite, you know, Japan having this ultra-loose monetary policy, which the Bank of Japan insists it wants to continue with, which is clearly the prime driver behind the weak yen, um, it's not really helping uh, Japan's growth projections. If you look at the IMF uh, forecast uh, that they made last week, they weren't particularly optimistic about Japan. Yes, well, of course, the IMF has downgraded its uh, assessment of global growth for 2023, um, and this will, of course, impact Japan um, to the extent that the external environment is much weaker in terms of demand. Um, however, I mean, one must remember that in a scenario of weaker global growth, this would imply a, a shift in, in monetary policy by the U.S. and would actually lead to a, a narrowing in this uh, yen dollar uh, yield spread that we see at the moment. So it could be the case that um, we could we, we could see uh, you know um, the return of capital to Japan as a result of that. So I think it's it's very unclear at the moment what it actually means for Japan. And um, you rightly pointed out that you know the, the weakness of the yen is a function of its monetary policy, which is very loose. 
but at the moment, the, the main drivers are, are coming from the external side, I think. So we see shifts in, in the level of the yen coming from, on the one hand, stagnant uh, monetary policy domestically, but the movements are really driven by uh, external uh, factors, in particular news coming from the U.S. Okay, John, sadly, we've run out of time. But thank you very much. That's John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan, stocks are rebounding. This morning, the Nikkei 225 is up about one and a third percent. In Australia, similar story for the ASX 200, also up 1.3 percent. The Cosby in South Korea is rallying one percent at the open. And as we wait for Hong Kong stocks to open in an hour's time, we're expecting the Hang Seng to add on about 300 points when trading gets going this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Do please join me again for that. Stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Jim Gordon and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, strong north to northeasterly winds, which are going to be occasionally gale force, cloudy with occasional rain. It is going to be appreciably cooler, temperatures around 22 degrees. Going to remain windy in the next couple of days and then a few showers on Wednesday. Uh, the strong wind signal number three is in force. It's 22 degrees, 55% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. A senior Chinese Communist Party official says corruption has been firmly curbed. Speaking at a press conference at the National People's Congress in Beijing yesterday, the deputy head of the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, Xiao Pei, said this was thanks to President Xi Jinping's drive to purge corrupt officials, which began a decade ago. He noted that of all the officials investigated in the campaign, 48% had committed their first acts of corruption and misconduct more than 10 years ago. He said only 11% had committed their first offences in the past five years. Mr Xiao said this illustrated the fight against corruption has been successful. Nothing can easily bring down a government like corruption. The fight against corruption is the most thorough form of self-reform. Report of the 20th Party Congress made the important assessment that in the new era we carried out unprecedented fight against corruption, achieved overwhelming victories and fully cemented the gains. Hong Kong's only National People's Congress Standing Committee member, Tam Yu Chung, says people should not expect the central government to ease border restrictions once the Communist Party's National Congress wraps up at the end of this week. Speaking on RTHK, Mr Tam said more infectious Covid variants were emerging and there was a need to avoid major outbreaks. Just because we're hoping for an immediate reopening of the border once the 20th Party Congress ends doesn't mean it will happen. It's just not realistic. The British Prime Minister Liz Truss has said she accepts responsibility for mistakes in the government's financial strategy since she took office. Ms Truss was speaking in her first interview since the new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, announced what has been described as the biggest ever U-turn in British economic policy. The Prime Minister said she wanted to apologise. I completely acknowledge that there have been mistakes. I have acted swiftly to fix those mistakes. I've been honest about what those mistakes were. And what we now need to do is move forward and deliver for the country. That's ultimately what people care about.
Earlier, the opposition Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer, accused Miss Truss of hiding after she sent a minister to answer questions in Parliament in her place. And finally, the mayor of Moscow says army draft officers are to stop recruiting reservists as the Russian capital's mobilisation quota has been met. He said any remaining summons were no longer valid. There's been a popular backlash in, Russia, in Russian big cities as videos emerged of recruiting officers chasing young men through the streets or organising checkpoints outside metro stations and shopping malls. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're going to talk about the minimum wage, which reports say could be increased from $37.50, the current rate, to $40 next year. And that will be after a four-year freeze. The 